the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from from what? The face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is an image of, of God finally and ultimately revealing His very presence to an unbelieving world and there's this terror and this dread. And there's that question at the end that just kind of dangles there. Who can stand? Who could possibly stand before the judgment of God when He reveals Himself? And that, that's a heavy question. It's a shocking question. You know, it, it definitely blows apart our sense of morality. You know, you ask the average person, like, so what do you think? If there's a heaven, uh, do you think you're going? You know, and people say things like, eh, you know, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think probably, I'm, you know, I, I try my best. I'm not an axe murderer, you know, and... You know, the guy two offices down at work, I mean, he's way, definitely way worse than I am. So, yeah, probably, oh, I'm guessing I'm leaning that way, you know. And so we have this kind of relativistic morality where we sort of compare ourselves to some person we know is probably more of a schlep than we are, whatever. But suddenly you read a text like this and you think, whew, who can stand? You know, God's standard is not you comparing yourself to me or me comparing yourself to this person over here or that person. God's standard is His own holiness, His perfection, His glory that we have rejected, ignored, spurned. You know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So when you look at a text like this, you say, who can possibly stand on the judgment day? And I think the question even rattles us as Christians. You know, even those of us who really do believe that Jesus has paid for our sins, that there's forgiveness in Him, that we don't have to face that terrifying judgment, I even think a passage like this can rattle us. You know, last Sunday after I finished preaching, I went to Panera, grabbed some lunch for my fam, was going to bring it home, and I bumped into some folks from the church. And so we were, you know, uh, shooting the breeze a little bit there, and, and uh, I was talking to this couple. At the end of the conversation, the, the wife asked me, she goes, just one question on your sermon today, Pastor. She said, do you believe we as Christians have to face this terrible judgment, this terrifying day? And, and you know, I, oh, I think the answer to that is ultimately no, because we've been saved from wrath. But still, a passage like this should rattle us a little bit. If we just read a passage like this and we kind of go, oh, okay, well, I don't have to worry about that. You know, we forget, yeah, Jesus is our Savior, He's the Lord, but He's still holy, holy, holy. And, and we should still have a fear of God in our hearts, even as we know He loves us and has saved us. There's, he's still an awesome God. And so that question dangles out there before us at the end of chapter 6. Who can stand? Who possibly has a chance of standing on their own two feet when God, the Holy Judge, the Creator comes and the, the, the blast furnace, so to speak, of God's holy justice is thrown open? And we're exposed before Him. Who can stand? Well, I believe chapter 7 is the answer to the question, who can stand? That what we have in chapter 7, it's sort of, if you sort of kind of follow the contours of the flow of John's thought here, the question, it dangles out there, who can stand? The answer is given in chapter 7. And so I'm going to look at verses 1 to 8 this week. Next week we'll look at verses 9 to 17. But it's a picture of those who have an opportunity to stand on that day. And it's a picture of this, this interesting vision of the 144,000 who are sealed by God. Let me read the text, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 7. 
It says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Well, hope that's clear as mud to everybody. You know, I don't know if any of you watched the TV show Lost. My wife and I are kind of lost junkies. And, and one, of the, one of the annoying things in this TV show is, is this, the whole TV show is sort of this big mystery. And they give you an answer to one of the questions in the mystery. And all it does is open up two more questions. So just when you think you understand something, you're like, ah, but then what's that mean? I feel like that's what happened here. Uh, you, you know, it's like, who can stand? Oh, I wonder who. The 144,000 sealed from all the 12 tribes of Israel. What? <laughs> what? What does that mean? So it's a really challenging text to understand what this is that, that we're talking about here. So I think it has some really great application for our lives today. But to get there, we have to wrestle with this a little bit. So what I want to do is I just want to try to break the text down a little bit. And I think that there are at least three major interpretive questions in this text that, that scholars debate and wrestle with. And after you look at these three interpretive questions, then I think on the other side there's some clarity, hopefully, on what this could mean when we go out here from this church today and go back out in the world and have to live our lives for Jesus' glory in this world. What does it mean for us? So let me just try to wrestle with sort of three major interpretive questions in the text. The first one, probably the least important one, but still it's there, is this whole vision of the four winds being held back so that the sealing can take place. What is that? Again, look at verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. I mean, what's this, what are these winds? Why are they being held back? You, you know, it, you sense there's some symbolism going on here. You know, the number four is a very symbolic number in Revelation of completeness or totality. You know, the, the four corners of the earth. Obviously, the earth doesn't have four corners. It's a globe. But, you know, it's, it's the idea of totality and completeness. You know, it's sort of this figure of speech. The four winds are being held back. And, you know, as New Englanders who are obsessed with the weather, we know there aren't four winds. I mean, this is symbolic language. So something's being held back. So what are these winds? Well, uh, probably we could say they're destructive. They're bad. If you look at verse 2 or verse 3, uh, do not, verse three, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So the wind is being held back from blowing on the earth. And it's like, do not harm the earth. So apparently these are bad negative winds. So what are they? What is this? Well, I mean, I don't know with 100% certainty, but let me tell you what I think it is. And then I'll give you a moment to look at me like I've lost my mind. 
And then after that, I'll tell you why I think it is what I think it is, and then we can move on and sort of look at this first interpretive issue. What are these four winds? I think the four winds are identical to the four horsemen of the apocalypse from the previous chapter. Okay, now you can look at me like, what is he talking about? Good. All right. And now, what are, what are these winds? Well, do you remember the four horsemen from back in chapter 6? Jesus is risen from the dead. He starts opening the seals in heaven of the scroll. And the first four seals unleash these terrifying horsemen in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. There was the white horse that went out to conquer and the red horse to make war and the black horse was famine and the, the green horse or pale horse, the Greek word can mean either, was sort of the horse of death itself. And this is terrifying forces unleashed in the world from God's throne. Well, where do those horses come from? I mean, biblically speaking, where, they weren't invented, first of all, here in Revelation. They actually appeared in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah. I want to, I want to show you something. Check this out. Walk with, follow me here. So put a bookmark here and turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 941. Zechariah, chapter 6. Here's the Old Testament framework for these four horsemen of the apocalypse. They, they actually appear in Zechariah also as forces of judgment. If you look at Zechariah chapter 6, page 941, verses 1 to, to 4. He says, I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had, here we go, red horses. The second, black. The third, white. And the fourth, dappled. All of them powerful. And I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? So here you got four horses, except, you know, Revelation, it's a guy riding on a horse. Here it's a guy being pulled in a horse in a chariot. But whatever, you know, the imagery is a little bit flexible. That's the nature of imagery. It moves and changes a little bit. But here are these four horses. Probably this is the background of, of Revelation. And they're destructive forces. Uh, the, the symbolism of horses all throughout the Bible is usually bad. <laughs> it usually means warfare. Horses were primarily uh, animals of war in sort of biblical figurative imagery when it's used that way. And especially if they're pulling a chariot. You know these are destructive, dangerous forces. So Zechariah asked, what are these four horses going out with all these different colors? Verse 5, the angel answered me, these are the four, what? Spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. Now some of you may have a different translation of the Bible. Instead of spirits, it may say winds. Uh, because the, the Hebrew word for wind is the same Hebrew word for spirit. It's one word, it's ruach. And you, it can mean wind, it can mean spirit, it can mean spirit like an angel, it can mean spirit of a person, it can mean breath. It has this sort of range of meaning. And so here it is, the, the horses are winds. And you're like, well, what are they? Are they winds or are they horses? Well, both and neither. I mean, they're not literally horses. It's not literally a wind. It's imagery to describe something, which are these forces of uh, chaos and destruction that are sent out into all the world. So I think, going back to Revelation 7, this is my take anyway. You can feel free to debate or disagree. It's not the most important thing in the world. But I think what this is, is this is the same thing from chapter 6, the four horsemen, but now they're being described as the four winds. 
the imagery has shifted a little bit. And, you know, that's part of the nature of the imagery of prophetic literature. You're dealing with very figurative, symbolic language. By saying that, I don't mean it's not true. I'm just saying it's that God's communicating His truth through symbolism and figures. You know, Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Well, which is He? Well, both and neither. I mean, He's not literally a lion or a lamb. Jesus doesn't have a mane. You can't shear Him. Okay? He's, he's not literally that. But figuratively, He's both. He's both. He's like a lion. He's like a lamb. You know, th- that's the nature of imagery. And, and I think one of the challenges we get into with Revelation is you have to understand how is God communicating to us in this book? It's not the same as in other books. Some books are historical narratives. And so you read them. What it says is what it means. God is here communicating through a figurative book. And so we have to be open to that. So, so if you come at Revelation reading it like a scientist, some of us are scientifically trained, and we read it like a scientific journal, you're going to get all kinds of weird things going on that aren't going to make any sense if you try to read this book strictly literally. You've you got to read it. Anyone here an artist? Any artists here? You're going to be cool with Revelation, okay? <laughs> it's very much images and pictures. And, and that's how it's intended to be read. Some of you are poets. Have you ever studied poetry? Have you ever taken a course in college on explicating poetry? You'll notice in poetry that images can shift very quickly and there can be the same thing represented by different images. And that's how revelation moves and it flows. And see, I think you have to kind of flow with it. So I think what's happening here in chapter 7, again, to use, maybe I've watched too much Lost on TV, but it's kind kind of like a flashback. You get these all the time in the TV show Lost. A flashback. All right. So Jesus is on his throne. He opens the seals. The four horsemen come out. The fifth seal, you got the martyrs who die. Sixth seal, the vision of the end. It all comes to a conclusion. Who can stand? Oh, I'll show you who can stand. Let's go back a little bit. So it's sort of another one of these rewinds. And you're like, wait a minute, are we in the future? Are we in the past? And all I got to say is, again, folks, welcome to prophetic literature. <laughs> all right. It jumps around. It, it moves. It's like sailing. Some of you are boaters, you're sailors. You know, on, on the ocean, things are moving, they're flowing, the winds change direction. You, you have to kind of roll with things. And that's how it is with prophetic literature. It's, you know, the, the Spirit blows where it wills. And so we have to kind of flow with Revelation and, and not just sort of come at it with a strict chronological mindset or, or a strict literal mindset because instead of just listening to what the text is saying about itself. So I mean, that's what I think is going on here. Is there some kind of flashback to answer the question, who can stand on the judgment day? We're sort of rewinding a bit even before all the horsemen are let loose. And God is saying, look, before any of this happened, I already did something. I did something already. Something's in place before any of this happened. What is in place? I've sealed some people. That's the second interpretive question. The second major interpretive conundrum in this text that you have to somehow sort out one way or another, the sealing. So who is being sealed here? What is this sealing that's taking place? Look at verse 3. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we've put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And we all know what a seal is, I hope. It's like a, a stamp. Some of you have done stamping and crafts. Kids do stamping. You know, it's a, you know, an engraved thing with some raised picture on it. You put it in the ink and you stamp and you make a seal. That's how seals were in the ancient world. Everyone would have a, you know, an amulet or a ring 
or archaeologists have found these things called cylinder seals. It would be like a, a tube, like a cylinder that you'd wear around your neck. And then it would have engravings on it of some picture so that if you had the wet clay, you would put your, your seal in it and you'd roll it like a rolling pin and the engraving would make a picture on it. And then you would know that was your seal. Okay? So it would be like, you know, who, who wrote that document? Oh, there's a donkey jumping over the moon. Oh, we know, that's Fred's seal. You know, everyone knows the donkey jumping over the moon is his, and now we know that belongs to Fred. We know Fred really signed this document, okay? Or whatever the you know whatever your seal is. So there's some seal that's being put on the foreheads of a certain group of people. Uh, and, and and what is the seal? Well, it's the seal of God. It's God's seal. And actually, Revelation tells us what that seal is. Very interesting. Uh, look at Revelation chapter 14. Turn over a few chapters. In Revelation 14, the 144,000 make another cameo appearance. And in Revelation chapter 14, we're told what the seal is. It's actually nice to know. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, get this, who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. So, what's the seal? It's the name of God Himself. You know, like property of Jesus. <laughs> it's what the seal says. It's God's name and the name of the Lamb written there. Like, this one is mine. It is written on their foreheads. You know, what an awesome picture. It reminds me, when I was thinking about that, it was reminding me of in the Old Testament, the high priest of Israel. You, if you, some of you know your Old Testament a little bit. The high priest in Israel had all these really cool clothes he got to wear. He got to wear this robe and a belt and a breastplate with gems on it and a cool turban and they all had symbolic things. And then you also remember the high priest also had a, a headband that he wore. And on the front of the headband was a gold plate. Anyone remember this in Exodus? And it had something written on it. So here you go, Bible pop trivia quiz. What, what, what was written on the gold plate? Holy to the Lord. Or literally, holy to Yahweh, which is the Hebrew name for God. The name of God was on his head. So it was like God's like, strap that forehead thing on, that little frontlet, you put it on your head, and now everyone knows, you belong to me. I've set you apart. You're mine to serve me in a unique way. And so there's a sense of identity here, that whoever these people are, they belong to God. They're His. They have the name of God written on their foreheads. Um, but I think that, that putting the name there not only identifies them as gods, but it's also a picture of protection. Because again, the question at hand is, who can stand? And the answer is, those who have God's seal are, are somehow protected from this final judgment day. That they've been spiritually identified that God's going to protect them. A second Old Testament passage, Ezekiel chapter 9, you don't have to turn there. But basically, Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet. He has a vision of the coming destruction of, Babylon, of uh, Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And in his vision, an angel comes and is told to go put a mark on the foreheads of all those who didn't participate in the sins of Israel and who were instead grieving and mourning the sins of Israel. And God says, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to protect them. So it's not only a sign of identity, it's a sign of protection for these people. So, so you have... These people being sealed. God has singled them out. Before anything bad happens, He's like, let me show you something. Before any of this all took place, I already had some people marked who are mine who I'm going to protect 
through all of the trials and things that come upon the world. And I'm going to spiritually identify them as mine. So that then leads to the third interpretive question, which is, who are these 144,000? So first question, what does it mean that the winds are being held back? I think it's, it's sort of a flashback to a time before the four horsemen are let loose. Uh, second question, what is the seal? It's a spiritual identification. It's not literal. Not literally having God's name on your forehead, but it's a spiritual identification of those who belong to God and are protected from the coming judgment. And then the fourth question is, okay, so then who are the people who are sealed? And you'll see that in verse 4. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. Chapter 7, verse 4. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So who is that? Who is that? 144,000. I'll tell you, it's verses like that that make pastors not preach Revelation. You know what I'm saying? It's really challenging. You know, I've come to my own conclusions on it, but then after I'd studied it, I looked at some of the scholarly literature and I could find at least five different major positions on how to interpret the 144,000. So this is just one of the challenges of preaching Revelation is, is you have to sort of wrestle through it, come to an opinion, but also recognize that there are people who love the Lord and love the Word of God that have different opinions on it. And uh, so, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw out there what I think it is, how I interpret it, I'm going to tell you why I think it, and then you guys can go and, and have a, uh, you know, chew it over at lunch and debate and discuss and, and see what you think, you know. So fortunately, we have not made the stance on the 144,000 part of our membership requirements at South Shore Baptist Church. Okay, we've left that out of the doctrinal statement for obvious reasons. So let me tell you who I think the 144,000 are of all the tribes of Israel. I think it's us. And by us, I mean followers of Jesus Christ. Starting with the believer's to whom this book was originally written, and all down through the centuries, all those who trust in Christ as their Savior. Now, why do I think that? Because it says 144,000, and clearly there's been more than 144,000 Christians down through the centuries. And it says tribes of Israel. And clearly most of us here are Gentiles. You know, Unless some of you came from Jewish families, but most people I talk to are Irish, Italian, you know, we're, we're Gentile people. So, so what does that mean? Well, I'm clearly taking this figuratively, uh, and, and let, me, let me explain why I think it's right to take it that way. Uh, let me give you six quick reasons. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but it's just six quick reasons why I'm interpreting this as referring to all believers. I wish I had seven, because that would be really revelation-y to have seven <laughs> reasons. And you would be convinced because there were seven. Uh, so I'm just going to give you six. If you want to, in your sermon notes, I put a little sermon notes thing in your bulletin, and don't read it now, but it kind of gives the nitty-gritty. So if any of you are like, you want to dig into the every little verse and every little argument, I put more meat there for you to read it in your own time. But let me just give you right now six reasons why I think these 144,000 of the tribes of Israel is just a way of saying all Christians. Number one, Revelation is a very symbolic book. And we've already seen that. Jesus is a lion and a lamb. You know, He has seven horns and seven eyes. I mean, it's just... It's, it's a book with lots of pictures. So at the very least, we should be open to a figurative interpretation. It, it doesn't mean it is, but I think we should at least go in with that possibility door open in our heads. Number two reason. The context of the passage. The question left before us at the end of verse 17 is, 
Who can stand? You know, to, if you want to interpret a verse, you always have to look at what comes before it and what comes after it. One of the things that cults do, any of you have had dealings with different cults, uh, one of the things you'll find in cults is they'll take one verse, and what do they do? Out of context, and make it say whatever they want it to say. Yeah, but you've got to read the Bible in some ways like you read any other book. You've got to say what comes before it, what comes after it. It's, it's written you know, reasonably and rationally. And so there's a flow of thought. And, and the question coming before this, I would point out, is who can stand? Who can stand God's judgment? And the answer to that question is, you know, biblically, those who know Christ can stand in the judgment day. So, so that's part of the answer to that. Number three, that number, 144,000. I don't know, it, it just is like screaming to me, I'm a symbol! <laughs> Numbers are so symbolic in Revelation. We've seen it again and again, the number seven, the number four, the 24 elders on their thrones representing you know, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And so I see a number like 144,000, I'm like, oh, come on now, what's going on with that number? Uh, could it be literal? I mean, possibly, but think about it, it's 12 times 12. You know, the twelves are a big number in Revelation. You have the twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles. Twelve times twelve is 144. Uh, and that's just not pulling that out of the air. I mean, remember back in chapter 5, you had the 24 elders. The twelve tribes of Israel, the twelve apostles. In chapter 22, when you get to the New Jerusalem, it has twelve gates, which has the names of the twelve tribes. And it has twelve foundation stones, which are the twelve apostles. So it's just in Revelation. And so it seems like instead of adding them, they're being multiplied, and that number is significant for that reason. And then it's multiplied times a thousand, which is 144,000. And thousand, again, is a number in Revelation that tends to symbolize a whole bunch. <laughs> it means a lot. It's a way of saying lots and lots and lots. You know, a thousand. You know, uh, there's a thousands and thousands of angels around God's throne. We've seen that word used that way. So, so I take that number, 144,000 to sort of mean something like a vast multitude of all God's people who are numbered, though. So it's, not, it's a definite number, but it's just a whole bunch of them all numbered together. Number fourth reason, I see this as referring to all Christians, the fourth reason, is because in verse 3 it tells us explicitly who these people are. They are explicitly identified. Look at verse 3. It says, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of who? The servants of our God. Look up that phrase anywhere else in Revelation. Who are the servants of God? Always refers to Christians. I mean, the book starts, chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show who? His servants, what must soon take place. So, you know, the first century Christians who received this book are the servants of God. We are the servants of God. And so I'm just saying, it tells us explicitly they're the servants. And that includes us. Number five, fifth argument. The seal. What's the seal again? It's the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ. That's something we as all believers enjoy. Go back to chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus promises the Christians, if you overcome, I will write my name on your forehead and I'll write my Father's name on your forehead. Chapter 22, verse 4, in the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, way at the end of the book, those who are in Jerusalem have the name of the Father and the name of the Son written on their foreheads. This is a promise for believers in Revelation, not just for a literal group in the future. And then finally, my sixth argument would be all these tribes of Israel. You're like, well look, they named the tribes. 
Yeah, but there's all kinds of funky stuff going on with the tribes, people. Alright? Like, where's the tribe of Dan? Did he get dropped off? Where is he? And what's the tribe of Joseph? You know, Joseph didn't have a tribe. He was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, and Ephraim's not here. Maybe he's taking the place of Ephraim? I don't know. And then notice, most importantly, so all those things kind of say, eh, this may not be just a literal tribal list. But then most importantly, the tribe of Judah is first. And we've already seen the tribe of Judah mentioned in chapter 5. It's Jesus from where? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I think it's a way of saying it's all those who are in Christ. He, he is the, the leader of God's people. That's why Judah is first. And he leads them as the lion of Judah. You see, Jesus is, Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Can we agree on that? He's the Messiah of Israel. And so, to be a true Israelite spiritually in the New Testament, you have to belong to Jesus. In the New Testament, God's people Israel are no longer defined ethnically. That's one of the major themes of the New Testament, running from the Gospels all the way to Revelation, is that now that Christ has come, the people of God are defined as those who are in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, now it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. Now it doesn't matter if you're kosher or not kosher. It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. That's not how God's people are marked now. They're now marked as all those who are in Jesus. If you were an extremely kosher, very orthodox Jew, but you reject the Messiah of Israel, how can you be part of Israel? You know, he is what defines it. It's all about Jesus who's redefined it. And so I'm not surprised that the church is called figuratively the, the tribes of Israel. It's made up of all those Jew and Gentile ethnically who believe in Christ. It's all been reoriented around Christ. And so who are these who are sealed? Who are these who are protected? I believe it's believers. You know, what an encouraging word this would have been for those Christians in the first century who originally got this letter. We've got to keep remembering them. You know, remember, that's who it was originally written to. What would this have meant to them? How encouraging is these Christians losing their jobs for their faith, getting thrown out of the trade guilds because they won't worship the guild deities. They're getting thrown in prison and harassed by their neighbors because they won't worship the patron deities of the town. They're being killed in some cases because they won't worship Caesar. And they're being harassed and pummeled for their faith in some cases and being tempted to idolatry. And it's like, God, have you forgotten about us? Have you totally forgotten us, God? You know, we say Jesus is Lord, but it seems like Caesar is Lord right now. You know, Jesus, where are you? Have you forgotten us? And this is such an encouraging text that, that where Christ is saying, look, before any of these things happened, I already chose you. You're mine. My seal of ownership is upon you. You will make it through these trials and on the last judgment day, which is really the only thing that really matters, you will stand. You will stand because you're mine. Because you belong to Christ. What an encouraging word that would be. You know, when we stand there on that judgment day, folks, nobody here is going to be remembering the recession of 2009. You won't think one thing about it. Right now, that's all we think about and talk about in the news. You won't, you won't remember it. You, know, you won't even remember... Your chemotherapy. You won't remember, you know, the kids and how annoying they were. 
Because all that will be in front of you is the judgment of God that will make all of that seem like small potatoes. This is the question that must first define us. Where do we stand with our Creator? Have we come to Christ or haven't we? And if we come to Christ, there's a sealing that takes place. There's an ownership that God has placed upon us. In fact, let me show you something really cool. This was another parallel text that was kind of running in my mind. and I'll just show it to you as sort of we close here. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Look at how God has marked His people. Ephesians chapter 1, page 1156. 1156. Look at how God has marked His people. Notice in Ephesians the Trinitarian structure. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each having a role in saving God's people. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. This is what the Father did. Actually, go back to verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Like what? What has the Father done to us? What's the first blessing? Verse 4. He chose us in Him. When? Before the creation of the world. Before any horses were let loose of their stalls or any winds blew. He chose us in Him to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons. So before the world began, God has predestined His people to be saved. He chose them even before we were in existence. God does that. Now predestination, whew, that's a big topic. I should probably do a whole sermon series on that. There's just so much involved in that. And even then we wouldn't get to the bottom of it. It's a, it's a mystery. It's a great challenge. But you know what I want to point out to you is that in this text, it's not presented as a puzzle. It's presented as an encouragement to believers that God has us in His hand. You, you know, it's this experience you have as a Christian. You're thinking about following Jesus. You wrestle with it. And finally one day you're like, I'm going to come to Christ Fine, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. And we, we walk through the door of salvation. And that door says, whoever wills may enter. Anyone can come to Christ. Just come to Him. So you walk through the door and you become a Christian. And then you look around at the door you just walked through. And on the inside of the door, it says, predestined before the foundation of the world. And you have this experience as a Christian of like, once you become a Christian, you realize, yeah, I believed in Jesus, but God was at work in my life long before I ever thought of Him. God has already done a work in me. My response to God is a product. It's an effect of His choosing. It's a great mystery. But the Father has sealed us. He's marked His own. And then the Son has sealed us with His blood. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. Jesus died on the cross to save His people. And that blood is the mark upon His people. I think of the Israelites on the night of the Passover, the first Passover. Do you remember that? They killed the Passover lamb. They took its blood and they spread it over the door of the house. They said, this one belongs to God. It's almost like Jesus has taken His blood and spread it over the doorposts of our hearts. Forgiven. This one belongs to me. So before time, God chose a people. The Father chose a people. In the fullness of time, Jesus died for a people in agreement with the Father's choosing. And now the blood of Christ is there. And I just want to tell you folks, the blood of Christ can forgive us of whatever it is that holds us back from God. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what your rap sheet is. 
I don't know what your baggage is, but I know the blood of Jesus forgives all unrighteousness. That no matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from, Christ can forgive you and cleanse you. You don't have to wait till you're better. You don't have to wait. Till, you don't have to become a member of this church to be saved. That won't save you. You know, listening to my sermons repeatedly won't save you. <laughs> Giving to the building project won't save you. I hope you give a lot of money to it, but it won't save you. <laughs> it's not going to do it. You know, don't. You don't have to wait till you're sober to be saved. You don't have to wait till you're clean to be saved. You just need to come to Christ as a sinner, as you are. And say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And trust in the blood of Jesus to do what nothing else can do, which is to change your heart and to forgive your soul of its sins. Only Christ can do that. Only the blood of the Lamb can extinguish the wrath of the Lamb. So the Father has sealed you before time. The Son has marked you with His blood. And at just the right time, the Holy Spirit came into your heart and brought it all home. Look at verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So you heard the word, you believed, you marked with a seal. And so the Holy Spirit takes the plan of God from eternity past, the work of the Son on the cross, and He applies it to our hearts just at the right time, and God turns that light on in our hearts, and suddenly we have the Holy Spirit, and we're marked as the people of God. How do you know you belong to God? It's by the work of grace in your heart. I think sometimes we have this tendency to try to assess whether or not God loves us by looking at our circumstances. And we say, does God love me? Well, I don't know. How's my marriage doing? Ugh, my spouse... Can I upgrade? You know, to, you know, what can I do here? <laughs> Where do I get a spouse? Why can't I find a spouse? God must not love me. Or we look at our children, you know, or, or your children. You look at your parents, and they're going through challenges and divorce and all kinds of trials, and you wonder, does God love me? Or, or we look at our finances, or we look at our health, and we're always trying. You know, we just fall into this this mistake of gauging God's work in our life by our outward circumstances and comforts. That's not where to look. You've got to look for the work of the Holy Spirit giving you faith in the blood of Christ and transforming you from the inside. Outwardly, we're wasting away, Paul says. But inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. It's the work of grace in our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Is Christ in you? Do you put your faith in Jesus? Is that faith growing stronger even through trials? These are the marks of God in your life. Not your circumstances. That's just the, the arena in which the drama of redemption is played out. So we need to be looking for those things growing. The mark of the Holy Spirit. These are the ones who belong to God. And you know the encouraging thing is God knows where you are. He's counted all of His. He has them all numbered. That's one of the teachings here in that Revelation 7. He knows every one of His people. We don't know where they all are. Have you ever done this? I don't know. I probably shouldn't be this philosophical at a Red Sox game. But have you ever gone to Fenway? You sit in the stands. 35,000 people all screaming. And you kind of get philosophical. And you're like, who are all these people? Where did they come from? What are their stories? All these people. You just, kind of, you know, so you just stop and you're like, who, 
man, all these lives, all of these stories, the world is so complex. You know, you know there's a lot of people out there, but it's another thing to sit with 35,000 of them singing Sweet Caroline, which is <laughs> so random. Uh, even weirder than Revelation. Why do we, I don't know. Um, and, you know, and, and I, I, as a pastor, I'm like, would they let me go down to home plate and preach a sermon to all these people? I don't know. I'd love to tell them about Jesus. You're like, do they know Jesus? How many of these people know Jesus? I don't know. They just look like people to me. But God knows. I wonder what Fenway looks like to God on a packed out day. I don't know. But, you know, my imagination is, you know, kind of what I imagine is like a sea of darkness. Of unbelief and rejection and anger and people turning away from God. And then in that sea, a light here. A light there. A light here. And we just see people, but God sees His own. He sees you. He sees you. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. He's chosen His people. And and not only does He see lights, but new lights are coming on as the Gospel is heard and proclaimed. He sees you. He knows you. He's numbered His people. And so fear not, no matter what you're going through. You have Christ. You have everything you need in Christ. And if you don't have Christ, today's the day to come to Him and put your faith in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship You because You alone have the power and the authority to forgive our sins and to reconcile us to God and to make us Your children. God, our hope is in You. Our hope is in You, Christ. We love You. We want to thank You for what You've already done in our hearts. We want to thank You for evidences of grace and faith that You've put there. God, I, I pray even for anyone here who, who doesn't know Christ, but they, they just are wrestling in a battle in their soul right now. Thank you that that's an evidence of grace too. And God, I pray that they would just surrender, lay down arms, put their faith in Jesus. Jesus, strengthen anyone here today who loves you but is just doubting, is full of fears and anxiety about their lives. God, may they just look at that ceiling, predestined, blood-bought, sealed with the Spirit, God. And may they know confidently that you love them, that you have purposes for their lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We now have the joy of celebrating communion together.